0: Alright, so tonight um, my title is a little funny, uh, Living As If Christians and Atheists Looking Over Their Shoulders at One Another. I wonder if you can imagine what that means. Uh, You know, I've been thinking about this topic for some time, and several times in the past uh, I've lectured on, spoke at uh, meal discussions about how atheists often are seeking for a way out of the closed system in which they find themselves. Uh, that they must inconsistently turn away from their strict determinism toward notions like freedom, morality, and belief. Now, not all atheists are of the same fiber, but what I mean by atheist, I often mean by um, a, a deterministic view. Strict materialism. Uh, so some, um, some atheists have even said that we need to live as if God exists. Even if God does not exist, we still need to live as if God exists. But during a discussion, one, uh, one meal, a woman rebutted that Christians are just as inconsistent. Uh, that Christians say that God exists, but they don't act like it. She wanted me to consider pointing the finger at Christians just as quickly as I pointed at atheists. And I thought that was a fair and just point. I've been thinking about as ifness ever since then. And I have seen it kind of show up time and again. So this discussion of believers and non-believers living as if, that's my phrase, has become a more public conversation through the work of Charles Taylor, a Canadian philosopher, particularly through his uh, book, A Secular Age, which was published in 2007. Um, It's really a significant work that has furthered conversation between atheists and Christians. A Secular Age is a philosophical treatment of the historical development of the secularization of the West. That was a mouthful, right? (laughs) Okay, A Secular Age is a philosophical treatment of the historical development of the secularization in the West, where disbelief has become the default position, the burden of proof falls on those who procl- proclaim a belief. Um, up until 1500 Common Era, uh, belief in God was uh, a belief in God was obvious. It was disbelief that had the burden of proof. But for the past 500 years, Taylor shows how we've got into this place where disbelief is actually now the default position and belief is the burden of proof. Um, while these philosophic and scientific developments have led us to disbelieve in God more easily, it has not killed the religious impulse. And that was something that's very critical that Taylor offers. Is the secularization thesis is that as science increases, religion decreases. And Taylor says that that's not so. Um, That even with the scientific developments um, of our society, the religious impulse is still very much alive. Um, And so we have Christianities or spiritualities. So now we live in this cross-pressured space where atheists are tempted by transcendence and Christians are tempted by imminence eminence is uh means this world this worldness eminence is all that there is is in this what we see um and so christians are tempted by imminence, atheists tempted by transcendence and uh, it's just this weird space that we're in it's not clear about where people fit and so atheists will speak about their need to live as if god exists And Christians, in spite of their proclamations to believe in God, live as if God doesn't exist, particularly in how they engage institutions like politics, economics, and even church. I'm not going to be going into Taylor's historical arguments. Uh, I'm simply taking this as a starting place in which to discuss what this looks like and what this is experienced like. Um, And I also want to ask, how might this incongruity of living as if might be overcome? Uh, The answer is surprising, to live as if, in a sanctified way, but we'll have to get there in a minute. But uh, I want to offer in this talk, how might we live um, with an integrity between our ideas and with reality? And I speak as a Christian, and so you will um, not be too surprised by my turning to the Bible as a response. (laughs) But my talk has three parts. Uh, First, I'll look at how atheists are tempted by transcendence, uh, living as if God exists. Then I'll look at how Christians are tempted by eminence, living as if God doesn't exist. And then I'll try to give some ways forward as a way of responding to both these groups And then make an implication from this way forward. And then we'll have a discussion. Okay, so atheists living as if God exists. Um, Next slide. Um, Stephen Crane wrote a short story called The Open Boat that tells of his being shipwrecked, of his being on a little boat with a few others trying to get to shore. Who's read this book, this story? It's one of my favorites, all time. Uh, they were without food and water. It's uh, autobiographical, but really well written. They were without food and water and they knew that they needed to get to shore soon. Yet the waves that crashed against the rocks knew that they surely that they would be dashed to pieces. And at that moment, Crane reflects on how nature cared nothing if he would survive or not. And so he wrote, "When it occurs to a man, That nature does not regard him as important, and that she feels she would not maim the universe by disposing of him. He at first wishes to throw bricks at the temple, and he hates deeply the fact that there are no bricks and no temples. So this is an expression of how it feels to live in a system completely closed off, closed off from a sense of a personal God and a personal universe. There is no justice or injustice with their death it just is what is yet crane is deeply angered by this you can see that and wants to scream against the injustice of it but has no one to cry to and even in this he cannot help but call nature she he 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 doesn't even like uh um he desperately wants to get out of this closed system and i call this existential claustrophobia Julia recently got locked in a bathroom and no one could hear her knocking, kicking, and screaming out. You can imagine the panic that she felt. Thankfully, the door came open, but it has caused her to get panicky whenever she's in a a bathroom, even if it's not locked. I won't go into that story, but that's funny. Um, But imagine that no one is hearing and there's no way of getting out because, that is, that what this is, um, that life in the universe is all there is. And our illusions of faith, hope, and love are simply that, illusions. Tricks of the mind to make life more bearable. Not only are illusions something we need at the personal level, to um, in this desperation, but they're also important at the societal level. Uh, Andrew Ferguson in... Uh, the Weekly Standard wrote in 2013 An article called The Heretic It's mostly about Thomas Nagel But he's speaking about Daniel Dennett here And Daniel Dennett is one of the four horsemen The new atheist And he's a, a determinist or a strict materialist uh, He doesn't believe in free will He doesn't believe in personal responsibility as a real thing Okay, It's just we're evolved and functioning <clears throat> And the article reads The author writes of Dennett If we repeatedly tell folks that their sense of free will or belief in objective morality is essentially an illusion, such knowledge has the potential to undermine civilization itself, Dennett believes. Better, said Dennett, if the public were told that for general purposes, the self and free will and objective morality do indeed exist, that colors and sounds exist too, just not in the way that you think. They exist in a special way, which is to say, ultimately, not at all. So you can see that Dennett's saying here that society, um, that science, um, or at least scientific materialism, shows that there is no such thing as free will, personal responsibility, even colors. These are just survival um, mechanisms that we need, um, that evolution pushes in an impersonal, non-purposeful way. But society needs it. We need it to function as a society, even though they are illusions. Otherwise, we would lose the ability to have cohesion as a society. In a special issue of Time Magazine called The Science of Romance, which I've brought up several times in several lectures, the authors use scientific findings to explain away romance, love, and commitment as mere survival mechanisms that involve no moral obligation. So if you think that you're falling in love, with uh, a woman, it's just because she's in the shape of a pear, and if you're falling in love with this particular man, it's because he's an upside-down triangle, um, or smells, or something like this. There's, there's no real thing to romance, it's just genetic disposition to help us evolve as a species. And so it removes a sense that there is such a thing as trust, romance, and love. But no, says the the strict materialist, or the determinist, they say, no, it's just just a mechanism of evolution, um, a closed evolution. So how can one live consistently with such an outlook? Thomas Nagel, an atheist, sort of, um, says that one can't, because it flies in the face of common sense. That materialism is an explanation for a world we don't live in. When a chain of reasoning leads us to deny the obvious, we should double-check the chain of reasoning before we give up on the obvious. So what, uh, what he's saying there, what the, uh, Ferguson's saying for Nagel, is that materialism, uh, like Dennett, uh, Dennett's saying, well, no, this is it's just a closed system. And love and romance and free will, those are all illusions. But that's not how we experience reality. And so Nagel says, the explanation materialism gives flies in the face of common sense. Um, And what Dennett wants to do is, well, common sense is wrong, my philosophy is right. And Nagel said, uh, or at least um, Ferguson is saying, well, if the chain of reasoning leads you to believe in the world that you can't exist in, that you need illusions to prop yourself up to live in such a world, then you need to question the philosophy, not the common sense. So, you have someone like Richard Dawkins saying, As an academic scientist, I'm a passionate Darwinian. But at the same time, I'm a passionate anti Darwinian when it comes to politics and how we should conduct human affairs. So, he can't live with his own philosophical conclusions. C.P. Snow, um, in 1973, to get to the theme of as ifness, says uh, in an ethical journal, a medical Ethics Journal, I believe that biological life, human life after all, I mean all life, is an extraordinary chance. The probabilities of such a coincidence are infinitesimally small. So here we are, isolated on our speck of matter, the products of random chance. Now I have to make a complete discontinuity from what I have just said. I believe we have to act as if each individual life was significant. As if all lives were, as religious persons have said, equal in the sight of God. As if conditions of other human beings had to be improved. As if there can be a more desirable life for others. And as if doing what we can to achieve that, we ourselves will live a more desirable life. So in this ethical journal, he's saying this is what I believe. But in order to be a a person who cares for life, and cares to perpetuate life, I need to make a complete discontinuity. So, so their philosophy squeezes them into a position that they cannot hold consistently. The determinism of what is, is suffocating, where nothing can really thrive without letting fresh air into the closed room. There is a desperation to open up the windows, and we see a recent trend where the determinism of the new atheists has been falling out of favor for a new type of atheism. One that wants to borrow the moral authority of religious practices, the Bible, and God. Uh, Jordan Peterson, in order to find resources in which to become responsible for a suffering world, looks to the Bible in order to combat what he senses as totalitarian forces at work in society and in the government, he turns to God. Jordan Peterson to the Scottish Catholic Observer said, I tell people I act as if God exists. People are often not very happy with that because it often doesn't fit in with the answer they wanted, but it's certainly the truth for me. So Christians want Peterson to say that he does believe in God, and, it, and atheists want to say, no, you have to make a decision, but he wants to live in this limbo land. Okay? Peterson's two-and-a-half-hour lectures on the Bible are getting millions of views, not just from Christians, but from many atheistic men and women. And so what are we to make of this? We also see Alan de Botton. In 2012, Alan de Botton's book, Religion for Atheists, was published and became a hot seller. In it, he calls for religious practices in order that society may be better secularized. Okay, I want you to hear that. He says we need religious practices to secularize better. He says it's not wrong that we have secularized society. Rather, we have secularized badly. We've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. The the baby, our religious practices, the bathwater is God. We We need to keep God out, but we can bring in the religious practices. In order to improve society, we need to return to what religions evolved to give us. Not God, but social cohesion. While he makes less use of the Bible than Peterson, he certainly sees the importance of religious practices. To act as if God exists in order that we might, as a society, be better at building healthy relationships, being honest about our problems, being ready to forgive. This list of the religious impulse in atheists has become steady, and I could continue to give several names, like David Foster Wallace, like Douglas Copeland, like P.T. Anderson, and many others. But the point is made. It is not possible to live consistently to a strict determinism, that materialism is an explanation of a world we don't live in, can't live in. So many atheists have become frank about living as if God exists. The Bible speaks of this longing for more as residing in the heart of every person, that in each heart God has set eternity. There is a longing that cannot be satisfied within a closed system. It cannot find rest until it finds rest in God. This, in fact, is what God holds as a witness of himself, and this bears witness against disbelief. So Paul says in uh, his letter to the Christian communities in Rome, that what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them for since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse Yet we may be thankful that this seed of religion rests in the hearts of people Um, As C.S. Lewis puts it A man who disbelieved the Christian story as fact, but continually fed on it as myth, would perhaps be more spiritually alive than one who assented and did not think much about it. The modernist, so you might think of Dennett or Dawkins, the modernist, or not Dennett and Dawkins, but more like de and Peterson, the modernist need not be called a fool or hypocrite because he obstinately retains, even in the midst of his intellectual atheism, the language, rites, sacraments, and story of the Christians. The poor man may be clinging with the wisdom he himself by no means understands to that which is his life." Okay, now I'm going to turn to talking about Christians living as if. So in spite of this religious impulse in atheists, this impulse toward religion, for living as if God exists, Christians reject their inheritance. Why does this happen? It is in part due to Christians, I believe, being unaware that our society and our institutions are not religiously neutral. So I'm saying our institutions and our society is not religiously neutral. And a lot of Christians do not understand that. While much of our modern civilization in the West has been shaped by Christian beliefs... For example, believing that each person has human dignity. It has been reshaped around human control and human accomplishment. This is the foundation for the West. This has shaped our politics, our economics, our technology, and more. Uh, This is what the analysis that Craig Gay, a professor from Regent College in Vancouver, shows in his book The Way of the Modern World, or Why It's Tempting to Live as if God Doesn't Exist. As a result, whether one is a Christian or not one's practices, one's cultural practices are shaped by the institutions in which they live and move and have their being. So Craig uh, Gay says contemporary society and culture so emphasize human potential and human agency and the immediate practical exigencies of the here and now that we are for the most part tempted to go about our daily business in this world without giving God much thought. Indeed, we are tempted to live as though God did not exist, or at least as if his existence did not practically matter. God might religiously matter, privately matter, but practically doesn't matter. Socially doesn't matter. Institutionally doesn't matter. This Craig Gay calls practical atheism. While we may profess a belief in God, uh, we in practice function as atheists. I should say, while the Christian professes a belief in God, the Christian practice um, and practice function as an atheist. This is because our society functions without regard to God, and therefore we are shaped by these cultural practices. Uh, Just as one is shaped by religious practices, as with prayer or holidays, uh, so can one be shaped by cultural practices. In the recent U.S. election, while one desired to vote according to their Christian convictions, many found themselves in a bind to know how to vote. Christians are swept up into the cultural practices around politics, and they discover that it's difficult to know how to participate in the political sphere as a Christian. As a result, a Christian may vote uh, according to this or that issue, one informed by Christian convictions, but that overall they feel conflicted by everything else American politics include. This is true for the Canadian as well. This wasn't just true for the past election, which has all the hullabaloo, but for elections for many, many years. Um, Christians often become one issue voters because they're trying to simplify how to vote as a Christian, rather than knowing how to vote in the overall political institution. Uh, and this is practical atheism at work in the institution of politics, um, and hits the Christian as a voter. Our cultural practices are not religiously neutral, and they impact our faith. It even impacts how we do church. Um, quoting Craig Gay. Practical atheism has become so disarmingly attractive in the contemporary situation that we have actually embraced it within our churches and not only in the so-called secular theologies of the last generation, but more significantly in the ordinary practice of Christian ministry. The contemporary mental climate is such that faith and prayer are rather routinely eclipsed by the practical efficacy of expertise and technique. Let me say that one last sentence again. It's so important. The contemporary mental climate is such that faith and prayer are rather routinely eclipsed by the practical efficacy of expertise and technique. Uh, One only needs to sit in a church board to hear how decisions are often made by practical efficacy rather than a prayerful disposition and patience. It's very easy and seductive for a Christian ministry to create certain programs because they're popular and they create more financial revenue. This is a far Thank you. This is a far cry from Jesus' own experience of ministry, or Paul's. To be a modern institution in a secular society can create demands that can make a church falter on its own beliefs and principles. So I have pictures of megachurches here. You can recognize Joel Osteen up here in Houston. Uh, but these are megachurches that are built on principles, I would say, that are contrary to the Bible. It doesn't look like a church that maybe Jesus or Paul himself would be comfortable in. And, you know, at Libri, we constantly experience this pressure. Uh, And most of the words we use, lots of the communication we do at our meetings, is how to remain faithful to our principles, and, and yet responsible legally and financially in a society based on differing and sometimes opposing convictions. Sometimes we must express biblical convictions to Christians who have good business ideas for liberty. Of course, we must be financially responsible and good stewards with what we have as a property and as a ministry, but we must be very careful in how we function. There are continual temptations to proclaim a trust in God, but function as if God is irrelevant to the practical designs of the church or the ministry. Francis Schaeffer expresses this, uh, um, practical atheism, as unfaith. He describes a room with two chairs. One chair is for the naturalist, the other chair is for the supernaturalist. Um, When one sits in the naturalist chair, one sees that the room is a closed one, like Dennett, Dawkins, and Crane. From this, they interpret all of reality within a closed system. Uh, This Schaeffer calls unbelief. The Christian sits in the supernaturalist chair. The Christian sees the same room, but the ceiling is off and the windows are open. This means that God can act in time and space, that the room is not closed to God, that there is an unseen reality at work. However, quoting Schaefer, unhappily the Christian all too often tends to vacillate between the two chairs. So what are we to make of this? Schaefer says that this is not an act of unbelief, it's an act of unfaith. He says that once a person accepts Jesus as one's Savior, that person is saved. By sitting in the other chair does not nullify salvation, for the object of one's faith is more important than the degree of one's faith. Yet, when a Christian sits in the chair of unfaith, they begin to function in a way that does not produce the fruit that God desires to produce in them. Instead, one is acting in the flesh, um, and one is taking away honor due to God, and one is only play-acting at faith. Uh, Schaefer says that like younger brothers of soldiers um, at home, uh, often play war, but there's really no cost. They're just play-acting. In the same way, Christians that sit in the chair of unfaith, Schaefer says, they only play-act and do not enter into the battle that Christ has called us into. As a result, we will not produce the fruit God intends to produce in us and out into the world. If we say we believe in God, but function as practical atheists. Craig a. Said, makes a similar note and says that Christians must dislodge modern and postmodern assumptions from our churches and from our hearts. Evict them we must if we are to be truly related to the God of the Gospel, and if we are to act as salt and light within an increasingly impersonal and inhumane culture. So what might we say of this inconsistency that Christians exhibit? It is the same as the inconsistency of the atheists who cannot live as if, um, or cannot live consistently to their own presuppositions. The inconsistency of the atheists is logical and behavioral. The atheist cannot function consistently in thought or in deed to the presuppositions of a strict determinism. Yet the inconsistency of the Christian is ironically consistent to the Christian witness and to the biblical um, witness. This inconsistency is sin. Um, And this is often exhibited not only in the person, but it can be exhibited culturally through idolatry. So that Christians are functioning as if God doesn't exist is a sinful pattern that the Bible witnesses or attests to. So, so the Christian is acting inconsistently, but it's not causing the presuppositions to be inconsistent. Uh, As G.K. Chesterton aptly put it, the church is justified not because her children do not sin, but because they do. It's not to say that sin is okay. It's just saying that it's not inconsistent to the Christian presuppositions of reality. And so Elijah um, calls um, uh, us in the same way as he called God's people um, um, ancient Israel. Uh, and what he's doing is he has uh, Israel was basically comp- loving Baal and loving Yahweh, loving God and loving. Baal, and considering them not as uh, antagonistic but complimentary, and they love both, and Elijah comes to uh, call them out, and he says to them, and I think it's a a good call for uh, the Christian that is tempted by practical atheism to hear this, is that uh, Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between the two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So with that, let's think about a way forward. This puts us in a better position to understand the way forward, I hope. Um, I said earlier, living as if points to an incongruity. Uh, The incongruity for the atheist is the same incongruity for the Christian. That incongruity is human rebellion against the Creator. We're living as if, in both cases, because they're both caused by human rebellion. For the atheist, it is rejecting the reality of the Creator and of what is unseen. Reality is closed off from what is unseen. But for the Christian, it is rejecting the provisions and promises of the Creator and Redeemer and not living faithfully into what is seen and unseen. Uh, Not allowing the unseen to shape how we are to live in the seen. So this incongruity falls into two directions, one in relationship to God and one in relationship to the unseen um, as a part of the seen. Okay. So, uh, so this incongruity uh, is, there's incongruity with God and there's an incongruity in how we live uh, to the um, unseen realm. Okay. So, so the atheist is living into the unseen realm by saying freedom, uh, trust and all of those things exist. Um, And the Christian says that they exist, but don't act upon them. So there's an incongruity between the seen and the unseen. So how might we overcome uh, this incongruity of sin in order that we might uh, participate in the fullness of reality? Um, Well, the first part of this incongruity is overcome through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve, it created distortions in perception. They realized that they were naked. And in action, all sorts of evil done against one another and the land and God and themselves. Humanity lived lived as if they were God, gods of the earth. Reality is flattened to serve human purposes by human power. Um, Yet God provided a way to be reconciled to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. It's by Christ's life, death, and resurrection that he has overcome this incongruity of sin. As Paul says in his letter to the communities in Colossae, in him all things hold together. It says that Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he, he brings this reality together. He, re- he reconciles all things. He doesn't just reconcile sinners to himself, but he reconciles all things in himself. The biblical witness is that in Christ all things are reconciled to God, and it's because all things were created through Jesus, and it's because we, um, um, and it's because He accomplished this through His death on the cross and through His being raised from the grave. This is the tradition, traditional and historic statement of Christianity, um, and it is said that it happened historically and objectively. However. So this this is how God accomplishes His reconciliation, but how is the Christian to um, to apply what has happened objectively in their own life? How might they find integrity um, and integration between what they believe and and, and reality? How might they function in uh, their convictions and what is true between what is seen and what is unseen? Uh, I have three responses as a way forward, and we have three uh, people. First, I'm going to respond from Pascal, and then the second from C.S. Lewis, and then the last from Francis Schaeffer. So let's look at Pascal. Pascal said that one will not be convinced of the truths of Christianity by reason alone, for there are reasons that reason knows not of. Um, he believed that we are much more controlled by our passions, um, that, that is, our emotions and our will. And so Pascal's advice is simple. Act as if you believe, then your heart will follow. I don't know whether such an answer will satisfy those around us today, but it is true that sometimes it helps to act as if, writes Wim Wright-Kirk, um, my colleague from Dutch Labrie. Um, in his book, if only I could believe. And he says, well, this is how, because this is the law of fairy tales. You know, it doesn't make sense, but if you kiss the frog, it becomes a prince. Um, so perhaps we should just bend the will, even though we don't feel like it, asks Vim. Um, uh, uh, but then he says, but wouldn't it be better if we felt like it? And so... Uh, Wim's book is all about how we might come over emotional barriers, over anxiety and disappointment and doubt and these types of things in order to embrace it and not just to live, act as if. Um, In relation to Pascal, C.S. Lewis says that we are more animal than we'd like to think. Performing acts have an influence on us. We need to practice our faith in embodied ways. We, We talked about that Often when people are struggling to know how to believe, or how to believe consistently, they are encouraged towards spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices. These are acts like fasting, praying, Lectio Divina, walking a prayer maze, acts of service. Now there is something to this, these practices can help. Sometimes when we act in ways that do not make sense to us in the beginning, can reveal their value in practice. It's one thing to study and act theoretically. It's quite another to do it. One may grow in their knowledge of a sport, but they cannot grow very far without the practice of it. And the practice informs their knowledge, their theoretical knowledge. So the theoretical knowledge and the practiced knowledge are joined as it is with apprentices. So spiritual disciplines can kind of be a tool, uh, uh, help you apprentice um, in uh, discipleship but in spite of its merits I'm cautious around spiritual disciplines it can put the cart before the horse or ritual practices before the grace when we depend on external realities to determine an internal change we can become easily disillusioned and fall into a ritualistic faith or a dead orthodoxy um a living, integrated faith needs to look to a God who empowers those acts, not acts that empower gods to act. You see? Okay, so that's the first response. Second is C.S. Lewis, who suggests an alternate way. And I'm going to uh, reveal his way. Uh, he talks about the need to imagine another world that we're made for. Okay? So in The Silver Chair, Lewis writes about how children from Narnia... Uh, find themselves in an underground world that is controlled by a witch. The witch's power is one of deception and perception. She controls the people through a magical fire and through intellectual enchanting words. She begins to confuse these lost children into believing that such a world as Narnia doesn't exist. That Aslan, the Christ figure, doesn't exist. And that there's no world but hers, a closed up cave. Through an effort to overcome the enchantment, one of the Narnian figures, Puddleglum, a marsh wiggle, burns himself and he starts to come to his senses. He says, uh, and I'm reading from the silver chair. One word, ma'am, he said, coming back from the fire limping because of the pain. One word. All you've been saying is quite right, I shouldn't wonder. I'm a chap who always likes to know the worst and then put the best face I can on it. So I won't deny any of what you said, but there's one thing more to be said even so. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and the stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that in that case, the made up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's the funny thing when you come to think of it. We just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world um, um, hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by my play world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. So thanking you kindly for your supper. If these two gentlemen and the young lady are ready, we're leaving your court at once and setting out in the dark to spend our lives looking for the overland. Not that our lives will be very long, I should think, but that's a small loss in the world as dull as you say. So Lewis is showing that how Christianity, perhaps made up like fairy tales by those who only wish it to be true, tell of a better world than the determinist can, one closed off from having any real meaning or any true morality. Lewis said that if we long for another world, then we must be made for another world, just as hunger indicates the reality of food. The longing points in the direction of its reality. But here, Lewis goes beyond just making a case, an apologetical case, for heaven or for uh, the reality of God. He is implying that it is better that one lives as if God exists and as if Christianity is true, even if one doubts it, even if it's not true, because it points to a better existence than what the determinist can offer. To feed on it as myth can point us in the direction of life. So some, like Lewis himself and uh, Andrew Clavin, author of a recent book, The Great Good Thing, found that pursuing this joy led him to Christ. But even with its merits, I believe it only goes so far. It sees that Christianity must at times be a leap of faith, that if doubt creeps in, we must allow ourselves to just believe. We can go further than the atheist who lives as if God exists. Schaefer says that we can have more confidence than this, that we can act upon the historic realities of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And this is the third response. Schaefer calls us, if you've noticed, that Pascal calls us to live as if, Lewis calls us to li- live as if, and now Schaefer is going to call us to live as if. But, in, but, but these are calls toward a sanctified as ifness. Okay. And Schaefer calls us to act in a biblically justified as if. In Romans 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says that we must act as though we have already died and as though we have already been raised with Christ. So Paul writes So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Um, the King James has reckon yourselves as. Um, and that this is, you consider it, apply it to yourself. And so Schaefer uses the word as though. Um, now, what does this mean in practice? That in our thoughts and lives now, we are to live as though we had already died, been to heaven, and come back again as risen, writes Schaeffer. When? Right now. This is the basic consideration of the Christian life. First, Christ died in history. Second, Christ rose in history. Third, we died with Christ in history, when we accepted Him as our Savior. Fourth, we will be raised in history, when He comes again. Fifth, we are to live by faith now, as though we are now dead, as though we have already died. And sixth, we are to live now by faith, as though we have now already been raised from the dead. Schaefer's emphasis on Christ being in history, did you hear that <laughs> repetition? is to show that reality is open, not closed. And so this ties the unseen to the seen. They're interwoven. There's to be seen as a whole. Christ is not simply a religious idea, but a historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, who died in history and rose again in history. And if Jesus died on a cross and rose again from the grave in history, this means that we, who live in the same stream of history, live to that same open reality. There is more to reality than meets the eye. While Schaefer is calling us to live as though, he is calling us not to pursue religious practices or act upon Christianity as a myth, but to have the full confidence that our faith rests on the living and historic Christ. The Bible calls us not to see this just as a historic event, but an event that we can now participate in. This is why Paul calls us to consider ourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God. Because it is by acting as though we are dead and raised with him, that we participate in that death and resurrection. For Schaefer, this is eminently practical, and he lays it out in his book, True Spirituality. In it, he says that biblically we are to follow the pattern of Christ himself. Jesus was rejected, slain, raised. And um, Schaefer says that order is very important. Um, it's this pattern that we are to imitate. Now for Schaefer, this does not mean that we need to reenact what Jesus has done in order to accomplish what Jesus has done. Only Jesus could accomplish what He accomplished. Um, rather, it is participating in the pattern of what Jesus has done that we participate in the historic reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus, of overcoming sin and of bringing uh, and bringing reconciliation, in ourselves and in the world. This is what Paul is calling us to do, and why he called himself of having a ministry of reconciliation. And so Schaefer is pointing out how this is done practically. When we act as though we are dead, which is first in the order preceding resurrection, we must say no to dominance of things, and no to the dominance of the self. So this is the practice of living as though. So it's not just an idea, but it's saying no to the dominance of things and no to the dominance of self. It is in this way that we are denying ourselves, our old selves, our sinful nature. And this is the practice of dying with Christ. It's not just an act of the imagination, but it is also an embodied act upon the promises of the Bible, the promises of a living God. It is trusting in God's promises because our current lives is all that we have. Um, It is what is. However, when we say no to the dominance of things and to the dominance of the self, we are trusting in God in this unseen realm to raise us up to the newness of life, raise us up to the fullness of life, life of God's spirit. Yet, it is this act of saying no that we finally open ourselves for God to act, for God to raise us up. If we don't die in Christ, then we are not raised with him. When we say no, we begin to make love a real and meaningful action. We do not say no just to be an ascetic, but we say no in order to open the way up for God to raise us up in the newness of life. The second act is to act as though we are raised up with him in heaven. The first act is as though we have died, and now we um, are raised as though, um, or, or to act as though we have been raised. And this reflects Paul's writing in Ephesians. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's very interesting because that's raised up and seated are past verbs. They are in the Aorist tense. So it's written in the past tense. Just as we may participate in the historic past event of Christ's death, we may also participate in his resurrection, which is not only historic, but also points to the event in the future. And so the future has has an impact on the present moment. So Schaefer calls us to imagine that we have been raised up with Christ, not just up from the grave, but raised up with Jesus to heaven. Then we should imagine having returned to the earth. Schaefer says that the constant pressure in our society to have us conform will be lessened. It won't be removed, but it will be lessened because we are now seeing it through the lens of eternity. And because we are seeing it with the assurance of what he has already accomplished in Jesus. Schaefer says, When God tells us to live as though we had died, gone to heaven, seen the truth there, and come back to this world, he is not asking us merely to act on some psychological motivation, as you might have with Lewis, but on what really is. Thus I am to live now by faith, rooted in the things which have been, such as Christ's death and resurrection, what is, such as the second stream of reality and the unseen now, and what will be, such as my coming bodily resurrection and return with Christ. While Schaeffer is calling us to live as though, he does so in reference to Paul's own words, and as the Christian does this, they are acting upon not a fancy, but upon historical realities at work now. Um, So this is a response to the second question. You remember the first question was how we overcome this incongruity to sin, which is through the objective and historic act of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The second question was how do we act upon this reality in order that we might be integrated into the fullness of reality, toward God and toward the unseen. It is in considering ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. It is saying no to the dominance of things and of the self, in order to keep us in communion with God, and in order to bring about the fruit of God in this world, which is His ministry of reconciliation. So, uh, my last, my last one. I just want to give an implication. Now, Craig Gay said that the church has. You can go to the next slide, actually. Craig Gay said that the church has lost its ability to point to a transcendent reality because it's compromised its own vitality as salt and light in an impersonal and inhumane world, uh, depending on practical atheism rather than the living God. So uh, Craig Gay says that the more we act as practical atheists, the more we compromise our Christian witness. Schaefer said that when we act as though we are dead in Christ and as though we are raised with him, that is when we become open to God, producing his fruit through us into his world. It is through this that the world may know that God is not just an idea, but a living reality, a person who produces life from death. And so I'm going to end with a story. Um, Ernie Gordon was a young Scotsman who enlisted in the Second World War in 1939. And in 1941, in an attempt to escape the Japanese, he and others were captured and sent to various death camps throughout Southeast Asia. It was there that he experienced various forms of brutality from his Japanese captors. He said that the severe conditions, particularly the inhumanity and their frequency of meaningless death caused the men to start acting like crazed animals. They would steal from sleeping or dying soldiers. They would keep larger portions for themselves and let others go hungry. They were turning against one another. He himself began to get very sick and he was placed in the death house. Where rarely did someone come back. When two friends went to go see him and visit him, they did not recognize him. He was very close to death. And so he decided at that moment he didn't want to die. And that he asked to be laid in the morgue, which laid at the end of the tent, which laid at the end of the tent because that was where the fresh air came in. Two Christians began to take care of him. Uh, Gordon himself was not a Christian. And. uh, Two Christians began to take care of him, one a Methodist and one a Catholic. And they would just rub his legs and talk to him. Uh, And his legs were completely numb and unable to work. I think it was amoebic dysentery or something like that that caused the leg to be um, paralyzed or unable to work. Uh, And he was taken to a lean to, a makeshift house on the side of the barracks. And over time, Gordon gained his ability to use his legs. And, over time, through study, he became a Christian. And his physical recovery reflected what was happening spiritually to him. But he saw how this began to work itself not just in him, but throughout the whole death camp, through the acts of Christians sacrificing their own interests for the sake of others. And so I'm going to read what he writes um, and, uh, and conclude. It might be thought that since this change in atmosphere coincided with my own slow return to health, that it was a purely subjective thing, that in my earlier state of depression and weakness I had projected a jaundiced view of reality, and that as this state receded I became aware of attitudes that had in fact been there all the time. Of course my physical recovery did lead to my having an enhanced appreciation of the personalities of my comrades, but the transformation in the camp was no subjective matter. It was a concrete reality, showing itself not only in the heroic acts of self-sacrifice I've described, but also in many other new and significant ways. One of these concerns pay. Um, so he talks about officers called other men to give up some of their pay to use their money in order to help those who are weak and unable, disabled. Generosity, quoting him again, generosity proved contagious. Once begun, this charity soon extended beyond regimental loyalties to include any man in need. Men started thinking less of themselves, of their own discomforts and plans, and more of their responsibilities to others. Although the pay which the other ranks had to share was even less than that of the officers, they too found ways to give expression to their generous impulses. A couple of duck eggs could be bought through a canteen for one baht, which is a Thai dollar, Um, And a duck egg might well save a life. So that means that these men were using their pay to buy an egg in order to give it to a sick man who was dying. Sometimes a detachment arriving from another camp after a forced march would have gifts of food pressed upon them. It was dawning on us all, officers and other ranks alike, that the law of the jungle is not the law for man. We had seen for ourselves how quickly it could strip most of us of our humanity and reduce us to levels lower than beasts. Death was still with us, no doubt about that. But we were slowly being freed from its destructive grip. We were seeing for ourselves the sharp contrast between the forces that made for life and those that made for death. Selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, greed, self-indulgence, laziness, and pride were all anti-life. Love heroism, self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity, and creative faith, on the other hand, were the essence of life, turning mere existence into living in its truest sense. These were the gifts of God to men. So he writes that in his um, book, To End All Wars, which I highly recommend. So if the world is to believe that God is not just a psychological or sociological or anthropological phenomenon, then Christians must act upon the promises given to them in Christ. It is living upon that reality that people may come into our midst and see and taste that the Lord is good. Okay, so let's open up for discussion. i me give you a minute to think about it.
1: It could be said could it not, that the transcendental and the eminent come together (coughs) at the point of death, or in the period immediately prior to death, when one's mind is on that. Mm. Um, For a lot of people, um, a great many people, Regardless of how they've arrived at that point, it's the now factor. Mm. Um, now, you've been addressing the pre-now factor, the everyday living, the, uh, uh, the way the Christian would live out their beliefs, the way that the atheist would live out their beliefs. We would perhaps say non-belief, but the same thing. Um, But at that moment when death is calling, can you comment at all, or anybody want to throw in any thoughts about how these two opposing uh, viewpoints of life and death come together?
0: Yeah. I I mean, you hear lots of uh, kind of near-death experiences, those types of things, or people who... Um, who get very near to the end of existence or non-being or the fear of death or something like that Uh, I think they start reflecting on is this all there is Uh, and it leads them to start reflecting in a much broader way in a historic way and I would say in in an eternal way Uh, that does happen at the end of people's lives it can happen during one's life that reorients them toward life and um, so just like Ernie Gordon, uh, he, he was he was in a death camp and came out with new life and uh, uh, not just physically uh, and not even just mentally, but also spiritually. Uh, he saw the unseen realm because he was so close to it. But I think that's why Schaefer um, and Paul himself says that we are we are to practice death. We are pra- we need to practice not putting ourselves at the center. We need to practice our, um, ourselves of, of a denial of the self so that that new reality might be seen and experienced and, and expressed. But I don't know if anyone else has any comments. What made you, what made you think of that?
1: Because a friend of ours died this morning. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, he was not religious, um, and I suppose it's just moments like that when when you realize the finality. Um, and some people have the opportunity, he probably didn't in his physical and mental state. He was in his nineties and dementia and so on. But a lot of people have the opportunity to uh, um, ponder, choose, decide which Mm -hmm. may be contrary to the whole of the rest of their life. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, that's true.
3: This is on a different topic, but I'm wondering how the Holy Spirit kind of fits into this whole thing, Mm -hmm. because my struggle with the as if and And maybe I'm struggling maybe one of those three answers that you talked about, the three as ifs, um, is more relates to this than than another, I'm not sure. But it does feel like all of them is still kind of like your effort to some extent. Like your effort to do the spiritual disciplines, your effort to believe take the leap of faith, or your effort to practice like um, acting as if death and resurrection. And so like what if <laughs> what if you find yourself like incapable of making that sort of effort? Like my understanding is like we can't do that by our- ourselves. So um, so how do we experience that that help from God, I guess, to, to do this? Like otherwise it feels like it's it's just like you trying to make you know, work something up or make yourself do something, I guess, if
0: that makes sense. Yeah, so, um, I do believe that with Pascal and Lewis, uh, it could suggest that it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessitate it, but it, it, it can, um, it can be worked in that direction, whereas Schaefer wants to be clear that it's, it's not an, it's not, um, uh, it's not an imaginative an leap, but it's also not a, a work of justification. And so um, even he says that when one calls on the name of Jesus, then that's what saves them. But then they might sit, they might go over to the chair of unfaith. And so um, and so they're not acting consistently. And so but he said, but and so he says that that salvific act of faith is not an action that merits God's salvation but raising empty hands and no longer calling God a liar so but a human does have to participate it doesn't mean that they've created their salvation but they've received it and so uh, in that sense it is it is resting on the object of the faith and so Schaeffer is very clear about saying that we need to not make sure that we're having faith in faith Uh, because that would say okay how how much must i pretend or how much how hard do i need to try you say no just calling on the object of faith jesus is what makes it substantial is what makes it significant what makes it established um and it's only established in jesus so that that is that but you would have to include um, he says that god does not treat us like a machine he treats us like a human uh with agency and our agency um uh, is calling us to participate in what God has given us, and so uh, Paul himself is saying, "Yes, I see that there's an asifness that there's who I'm claimed to be in Christ, and but I'm not yet perfect, but I strive to take a hold of what Christ has taken a hold of me, you know, uh, and so it's not it's not acting an agency in order to merit something, but it is acting in order." To uh, uh, an act of trust, an act of, uh, an act of trust of participating in what God is doing in us. And so that God might produce in us. And so it's not, uh, you know, he talks about active passivity in the same regards. That, um, you know, activity is say, well, I'm going to do something for God. And he goes, that's a mistake. The worst thing that the church can do is to try to establish the kingdom of God in the power of the flesh and not in the power of the spirit. But at the same time, we're not supposed to be passive. You know, God does his thing and I'll do my thing. Uh, He said, that's not it either. And so he points to Mary as that exemplar of active passivity who says, um, let it be according to thy promises. And so it's this kind of trusting in God through my agency of trusting, but allowing God to produce his fruit in me. I'm not trying to produce fruit for him. But I'm trying to allow God to be at work through me, and my agency in that is to say no um, is to practice that death and so uh there is there is some agency, but it doesn't mean that you're meriting something you're allowing God to be at work through you you're you're trying to remove the barrier um, of of that I don't know if that's yeah.
3: That, that's getting mostly to it.
0: Right? Now, the Holy Spirit is what is, um, which is applying all this. Mm-hmm. You know, the Spirit convicts. The Spirit indwells the Christian. And so the Spirit is speaking us to move in these directions. Mm-hmm. And so the conviction is, you're not living as if God exists. Mm-hmm. And so God speaks to us to try to draw us back to Himself and try to draw us toward acts of love. Um and so the Spirit is, you know, working out that you know, is is working out that salvation in us as we as we try, as we seek not to grieve the Spirit but to to keep in step with the Spirit. Um, so the Spirit is is just as active um, as it. Um, so that's helpful. Thank you.
3: Um, I was just wondering about sort of seeing this like practically applied and how you would talk with someone about this? Cause I brought this up to you before, but I had a close friend who left Christianity. And I remember a conversation we had where he said, I'm just, I'm tired of just acting as if like that, as if he is, as if those things are like really have sunk in or like, um, he really believes like trying to act. So I would say that's more kind of like the path. Well, maybe it's a combination of Pascal and Lewis, I'm not sure, but, like, what would you say to someone who's saying that? Um, Like, it's like you felt such a dissonance between the way that he was trying to act into something that was, like, somehow missing the reality of where his heart was. Um, And I was like, and I've always thought about that, because I was like, well, good point. Like, I don't think that you should act um, out of something that, like, isn't seems no longer sort of true in your like to your own experience or whatever like he he needed to somehow (laughs) grapple with something that he hadn't um so how so i guess part of the question is like how do you make room for people to grapple with um their doubts and those kind of things um and at what point does someone maybe even need to walk away I don't know. So that's sort of a general question.
0: Yeah, no, it's good. I mean, because uh, I certainly uh, don't want to someone to be a sham. I and mean, there's been people here, uh, um, not here, but people who have come to Libri that I have encouraged to say, well, then walk away. Um, uh, I'm not going to hold on to you. Walk away. But I try to encourage them to act as rigorously toward Christianity as they do toward their own new... Philosophical, worldly, or whatever. But more often than not, they just want to not think anymore. They want to just not worry about it and just live life. But um, but it, it becomes something very opposite of what they struggle with within Christianity because they were so rigorous and didn't want a kind of an unthinking Christianity. And now they're just now in an unthinking, different belief system. So I struggle with that. And so I always ask people, well, walk away. Go ahead. I'm not going to stop you try to be as rigorous with yourself as you have been with christianity Um, but the second thing is uh every person is 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 different wim wrote the book if only i could believe in his response to so many people that he saw pass through the agree with the same problem they they want to they um you know like pascal says act as if you know and then the heart will follow and Wen was like, well, that might work. There's some merit to it. But he's seen a lot of damage in that too. And so fake it till you make it. Yeah, that's basically it. And he it. said, no, there, there might be many reasons why there is a, a, a discontinuity. And that discontinuity might be from, uh, from uh, emotional barriers, anxiety, disappointment with God, disappointment with life, um, doubt. And so Wen was encouraged questioning. And so Labrie is a place where don't pretend and fake it. Go and be honest with your questions. Be honest with your questions and work them out really rigorously. Uh, And so sometimes we we sit in that play acting or that pretending as if, and we just never really address it. It just sits as a burden on our back. And then we just push it away one day and say, I'm free of that. Um, Without wanting to be honest and turn and just like grapple with what, what struggles are we having? What doubts are we really having? What kind of, what kind of barriers are there? Um, but like I said, it's every person is different. Um, and sometimes they, they should walk away.
3: So how would that relate to the chair analogy? Like, can you sit in that? Like, where are you when you're, when you're trying to address your doubts? Does that mean that you're having
0: on your yeah. No, No. Um, I don't think that that's what Schaefer sees. A third Schaefer? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, every metaphor is limited. And
3: I wanted to know which chair was which, too, because which chair was more supernatural? I
0: kind of well, about. actually, go back to the picture, and I'll show you. I actually had an idea with that one. Uh, if you go, um, one is facing away from the light, and one is facing toward. So if, if the picture was broader, there's the window here, uh-huh. and this person is facing toward the window, and this person is facing uh-huh. away from the window. So that's what I was working out. That's <laughs> um, And it looks like a lot of oh, so that's Penguin the doubt, publications. That's the
3: doubt section right there in the window. This
0: is the doubt section right in the middle. <laughs> uh, no I mean I think Schaefer, and I would, I would say at least speak for him, is that um, it's not uh, it's not unfaith to question. It's unfaith to practice. What he's trying to address is people acting as if God does not exist, even though they say he does. They're, they're saying that the world is closed off. They, they do these religious practices, they believe in God, but they don't believe that he can actually break through. That he can actually intervene into our lives. So that's the chair of unfaith.
1: And one of the biggest criticisms that people outside the church have of the church is that they are
0: hypocrites. Right. Absolutely. Right. That's, that's why, you know, that's why Gay said that, you know, it, it compromises Christian witness to be salt and light in an impersonal and inhumane society. Absolutely.
1: So, is there a little... I don't know, because it, it seems to me like the value, the most value is to be true. To, to live truly. Yes. But if you're acting as if it sort of feels like it's not true or like you're living like it's not true. So yeah. I don't know. Well, see,
0: that's, you know, I was working that out because the three responses that I found mm-hmm. elsewhere were actually as if responses. So how do you respond to as if? Well, you should live as if. And I was like, "Well, that seems very unsatisfying or dissatisfying." Yeah. But, you know, with Schaefer, and, uh, you know, my talk was quite dense, but I was trying to say that, that Schaeffer um, is saying that you're acting as though, because he says, um, you're not acting as though for just a psychological manipulation, right. but upon the basis of reality. Yes. And so that means that we, and so that's why I think about Paul striving for what he has not yet attained, but Christ has attained it for him. And so there's going to be some dissonance because we live in a fallen world. Um, but the fallen world is our reality, but is not the reality as it should be. And so there will always be some kind of gap. But Christ has bridged that gap for us, and we participate in bridging that gap. And it will not be until Christ returns that, you know, that um, heaven and earth are fully married, you know. That, uh, that it will be on earth as it is in heaven. But until that point, we pray and we act, you know, we act as though we are dead in Christ, as though we've been raised with him in order that he might make that reality integrated, that he might make us integrated. So, um, so it's as though, but it's not, it's, 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 um, it's keep walking over the bridge that Christ has walked before us so that we might keep integrating. And so that as-thowness is actually working toward reconciliation rather than away from it, um, as it is in the other cases.
1: So for the Christian, is that
0: obedience?
1: It is is obedience,
0: yeah. That's right, yeah, it is. It's acts of faithfulness.
4: Um, How would you respond um, in this setting to say the response of Frank Schaefer who, ba- who basically says, says I am an atheist who believes in God. It's not a gradient. It's not I'm doing both. It, or it's, it's I am this fully and I am this fully much in the same way that a Christian would say that, God, that Jesus was 100% human and 100% divine. It's not a gradient. Uh, Frank Schaefer would say I am both those things. I, that's how I—that's how I understand his position. I—I I, I might be wrong on that, but
0: that's—I actually don't really understand his position, to, to be honest, um, because I know his movements, uh, that he's moved in, and finally into this position. And sometimes I think he's just a contrarian, and he doesn't want to be pigeonholed, and so he wants to hold this contrarian position because he doesn't want to be grouped up into fundamentalists or evangelical. Or conservative Christianity, he wants to be um, more broad than that, uh, and and God remains something more mysterious than something personal, uh, in a way that his parents understood God to be. So that's how I understand his position. Am I right? I don't know. That's my guess. Um, but I don't know where to put Frank Schaeffer in this category. I mean. <laughs> To compare him to the fully God, fully man is, you know. I know that you weren't making that, but it's just kind of yeah, funny. Um, but yeah, I don't know. What do you make of it?
4: Uh, well, I, I did say, you know, the little that I know, I've seen a couple of YouTube videos, so I don't know. This is not something I know a lot about. Um, but, you know, he, he's talked on Google and he says, you know, it's not that uh, it's not that I don't or you know, I'm fully this one thing I'm fully an atheist. I'm not I'm not saying anything about that. You know. But you know, there are moments where, you know, I, I want to reach out to the transcendence and in that and then that moment I believe and, and, you know, I just live with the dissonance because we're a in um that's sort of the way human beings are. Mm. We're a dissonant we're a mm. dissonant creature and so we um you know, it, it doesn't make it it's it's too boring to live um, mm. as a atheist all the way down and I need to have some structure. I when when I when I heard that talk I um, I related it to if anyone's read Life of Pi. Mm-hmm. I read that in mm-hmm. grade eleven where they, they say, Well, you know, there's, there's these two stories and, and one sort of makes sense and one is uh you know, the idea that he cannibalize the chef was cannibalizing his mother or, spoiling the book but uh, there's there's a there's a story that's very raw and very brutal and yeah it's probably probably happened this way but the story with the tiger is just a way better story mm-hmm. and so we're gonna proceed with the tiger story because it's a better story um, I think my, my idea was that Frank Schaefer was trying to um, keep that mystery because he didn't because he didn't feel like living a life that didn't have that mystery or, or that sense of mystery, but intellectually was an atheist all the way down. That's how I, yeah,
0: I, I find that very dissatisfying and um, uh, I think it's a, it's a cheap way out in my opinion. Um, it makes me think of Elijah saying, stop swaying between limping between two opinions. Okay. Either God is God or bail is God. Make a choice, and um, and I think if Frank Schaefer stands before God, God will say, <laughs> or uh, what? However, but it's just like, what is that final choice? You know, um, just to try to try to say, oh, I'm just going to remain mysterious. That's like a guy not being able to commit to a girl because he doesn't want her to know all the warts. You know. Um, um, it's like, oh, I'm just going to mean mysterious.
4: But I think a lot of people live like that. Mm-hmm. It's just they don't, they're not uh, making YouTube videos about it mm. and actually saying it. At least he's saying mm. the reality of what so many people actually live. So I don't think that it's s- so strange. He's just actually putting words to it. And when you put mm. words to something, sometimes it doesn't make very much sense
0: yeah yeah that's true sometimes when we put words to things we realize <laughs> yeah maybe the meaning of them um, but i would find that closer to someone like jordan peterson
4: mm-hmm. who
0: wants to feed off you know the biblical stories yeah. but not make a commitment to them right um yeah that's what
3: i was going to ask about this yeah. as one Peterson says and because I have a friend who's really into him and he said and I asked him recently about because he's sort of seemed to be shifting from atheism to atheism and I was like Do you, what do you think about Jesus and these things and he's like well I believe in the myth of Christianity but not like the reality yeah. And so yeah so I think that's really interesting I feel like there's a lot of people who are there right now that it seems to like capture something maybe emotionally or um seems related to something intellectual, but they don't really want to fully jump on board for some reason. Yeah. Um,
0: Yeah. I mean, Alan de Baton does something similar. Uh, Yeah. I I find that um, they want the benefits without the obligations. Um, And I wonder exactly how powerful can it be if it's not true? Um, Because, you know, uh, when you only treat it like a myth, and not something historical, (coughs) Mm -hmm. then it can lose focus on what the Bible actually says, and it becomes the making of the gospel in the way that you want it to be. You start using biblical stories like Peterson does, sometimes usefully sometimes you're like what <laughs> and you just see that he's importing his view onto the text in order to make use of its moral authority yeah. even though he's trying to basically borrow like you know Schaeffer says you're trying you know you're basically in unfaith you're trying to um, uh, uh, take what's due to God the honor and glory to God and take it for your own authority uh, I think that that's what someone like Peterson or de are doing, and it become and it can become quite scary, uh, because that's where churches can start importing what they want into the Bible, mm-hmm. into these biblical stories, for the betterment of people, quote-unquote. Um, I think that that gets really scary. To tie it to the historic, and to tie it to the real, um, means that we have to commit ourselves to its obligations, and be tethered. To what it says of itself, rather than being able to import what we want, um, which we can do once we <coughs> remove it from the historical.
3: Yeah, I was thinking about a podcast that Esther got me to, um, where this Catholic priest is talking with these guys, all look, fitness guys. Um, what is it mind pump I don't remember what the is. mind pump if you want to pump pump your body and expand your mind yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) Um, but they were asking him about sort of about acting as if I would say Mm -hmm. um, as if Christianity is true and like they're they're not Christians but um, he was saying like yeah you can take some of these things like the ethics or whatever but it's like trying to like have cut flowers, like mm. they will only last for so long without the roots and eventually they wilt and
0: die. Okay. Yeah, and I think that that's what you see with, uh, you know, more of the kind of secular theologies that you would see in more liberal churches. Mm-hmm. And you would see that there is, there is something that is dying there. Mm-hmm. And usually the fresh impulse for belief happens in uh, those who hold to a historical conservative faith. Mm-hmm. Um, conservative I don't mean politically but I mean conservative in holding to what the Bible says and that really that rejuvenates and generates life into a community whatever building they might have but once you start removing it from the historic you start becoming it becomes looser and looser and looser uh, until until it dies because if your commitment to the faith is not so strong then how strong does your commitment need to be to the community well they're actually quite connected and it starts becoming loosened and people are like, "Well, why do I even go to church? Yeah. I can find social my social life somewhere else
2: mm-hmm. yeah. Whenever I think about a conversation to do with atheism, I, I default back to Frederick Nietzsche uh, he must be the grandfather of modern philosophy of that God is dead mm-hmm. um, and I think he's informed a lot of the modernists and particularly Jordan Peterson, who's mm. a big fan of Absolutely. Nietzsche. And um, I'm trying to think of one of his quotes um, to do with that if it's not that if God is dead, it's not that people won't believe in anything. It's that they're free to believe in everything. And we see that in the world I think today with that in place of a you know, monotheic God, that everything becomes God, yes. it's completely subjective as to what you put as the utmost importance in your life. so I was talking to Julia and we were talking about atheism. And there, there are no atheists really, because if you're not sure of what it is that is God, then it's probably you. you, know, you, mm-hmm. you are your own God right
0: no. Yeah. And I, th- and I think that that's what um, so much of society battles over, what are the ultimate ideals or the values that we're going to hold, government or total freedom, you know, or something like that. Uh, you know, These ideals or ideologies end up becoming at war with another, and there really are religious wars.
2: Um, Back to the point that you were bringing up about on your deathbed, these other gods that we create are, are empty? Like the Baal worship, it's, it's empty, it's fruitless, and you may not realize that until you're faced with your impending your mortal impending nature. Mm-hmm. That what you've been doing has been fruitless, and it's not been a path of life. And a lot of what Christ says is so simplistic in that I'm the life, <laughs> away. It, there is life here if you do these things, if you follow this way, you'll experience life. And for true atheists, so but when, when talking to people who don't have a belief in in, 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 in a spiritual god in something supernatural, um, yeah, it's just such an empty 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 life for them, you know. It's such a life of despair and uh, dissatisfaction. Mm-hmm. Because it it can't be reasoned; it has to be experienced. You can't tell anybody about God. You've got to experience God in your life. God has to be in your life. You've got to see how things work out. And it's a very deeply personal thing. Like Jordan Peterson will say that he can't be pinned down because it's so personal that he doesn't really want to discuss it. He deflects with that, right? Mm -hmm. I find watching his biblical um, lectures quite funny because he defaults back to saying, "God only knows" <laughs> when it gets too complicated for his rationale mm. to head in, mm. and he will use "God only knows" in a two-hour lecture, probably 30 forty times a mm. <laughs> Maybe he should ever mm, think about what God does.
0: great. Any uh, any other questions? Okay. Have a good night. Thanks good night.